Director, you broke the story last night in this program, the allegation that someone at the Phoenix VA is trying to hide the exact number of dead there. Is someone investigating this? Yes, we do know the information, Anderson, was given to the Office of the Inspector General by our whistleblower. Polly DeWinter says she did that as soon as she noticed the records she was in charge of being changed. The Inspector General's office told us just this afternoon they were aware of the allegation prior to our broadcast last night. It is under review. And let me remind you of what we are talking about. DeWinter, the scheduler at the Phoenix VA, Anderson, says until recently, until recently, she's been going through this wait list, calling to check on the veterans waiting for care, and in seven cases where she was personally learning that the veterans on that wait list had died, where she notated that in the record, someone, she says, has gone in and changed those veterans back to living. The FBI is going to find out who did that? Yes. Yes. The FBI will find who did that. Will the FBI also be able to find out who changed dead people back to life and put them back on a list? Yes. And they'll find out that fraud was committed? Correct. Are you pretty confident that people are going to be charged with crimes here in Phoenix? I would be surprised if they were not. I mean, it's just extraordinary. To be clear, she says this was going on recently. She says it was happening up until just a few weeks ago. It's her belief somebody is trying to throw investigators off the trail of several veterans who have died waiting for care by hiding the fact, Anderson, that they died. She thinks it's a crime. We know the FBI is involved in the Phoenix investigation, but beyond saying they're aware of the allegations, the IG isn't saying much, the FBI isn't saying anything. And, and polling to winner, she still works for the VA. I know last night she said she was scared about, about coming forward on the program. Uh, has she gotten any reaction at work today? Yeah, she's very emotional when she's talking to us today, mostly very supportive. She says many of her coworkers are thanking her for speaking out. The only reaction that she got from management, she said, was she was told to meet with the new director of that Phoenix VA this afternoon. That meeting was canceled. She doesn't know what it's about, but she's still very nervous. Her going public could harm her career in the long term, as, as are many whistleblowers. Sure, understandably. And, and the former Phoenix VA director, Sharon Hellman, the person who told you back in April that there was no waiting list, uh, that it was all basically a misunderstanding, has she been fired? She's not fired yet. She remains on leave on the payroll as this investigation pans out. We do know the VA has begun the termination process uh, with some of the executives there. She's apparently one of them. But to your answer, she's getting paid. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight is no exception as we talk about veterans being left in harm's way in this country. What is going on where our veterans who fight for the freedom in which we live under, and that umbrella, if you will, and our veterans are treated so very badly? We're going to deal with that tonight, and also the latest story one of the abuses of power, or abuses rather, to our veterans, 11 suspicious deaths at a VA hospital. Uh, and that particular story we're going to share with you. And my understanding of this, 
while the questions have been raised, it was reported that uh, some of these veterans were giving insulin injections without even having diabetes, which, as you know, is a toxic killing formula. We're going to deal with all of that. Not only that, homelessness in America with our veterans, uh, veterans on the streets of this country. Why is it and why is that going on in a place we call free? This is AJC Radio. We take off right now. There you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Kendrick Barnes, Sampson Riddle, William Williams, Dennis Merritt, and Cliff Stewart. As tonight we deal with this issue of, the, of our veterans, the treatment of our veterans, and all that's going on there is absolutely horrific. We're going to deal with that tonight, and uh, I'll, get, I'll get to our veterans first as we get ready to uncover this story. How is it that veterans are being treated so poorly in this country, and that thus the title of the show, Veterans Left in Harm's Way. Uh, it is appalling that you have officials uh, that are working at, the, at these, this ain't the first story with the VA hospitals across this country of abuse that has gone on. Uh, federal officials are investigating as many as 11, uh, as 11 deaths in West Virginia, uh, potential wrongdoing. They announced this week in an inquiry that has rocked the Department of Veteran Affairs Two of the deaths of the, of the uh, excuse me, two of the deaths at the Lewis A. Johnson VA Medical Center in Clarksboro, West Virginia, have been ruled homicides, according to media reports. Both are now the subject of lawsuits. Investigators contacted the family of George Nelson Shaw Sr., an 81-year-old who died at the hospital in April of 2018 to exhume his body. Last winter, according to U.S. Today, their investigation found that he had died not of natural causes but from an insulin injection that he didn't need. Felix Kirk McDermott, an 82-year-old Army veteran, died at the hospital a day before Shaw. His body was exhumed. Lori's had his family has hired said that he too died after receiving an insulin shot in his abdomen. Are you kidding me? Why, what in the world would cause somebody to inject insulin inside of a person who is not diabetic? Another example of just clear abuse by the people in these in these uh, VA hospitals, Dennis. What do you say? Yes, yeah, a tragedy. A, a lot of the uh, uh, the doctors, and, and it's not all doctors, not all nurse practitioners. So I'm not wrapping them all up in the same uh, boat. But a lot of them, I mean, they, they feel they're underpaid. Uh, a lot of them take the job. And then when they, when they, you know, they, they, they think that they're caring for that patient or, and, and, and in actual reality, they're not. They're just showing up for work. I mean, they see so many veterans and, and it's all, it's so weird. Even when I'm like, when I get seen, it's like they're looking at a textbook and diagnosing you and then saying, okay, uh, let's try this drug. Let's try this. Let's try that. Look. Almost like uh, they're experimenting on uh, Look. our military. I don't care what uh, medical school you've gone to. Uh, insulin is a killer. So, well, my check was cut about 20 bucks today. Let's go ahead and inject this guy in his stomach with an insulin shot. Are you kidding me right now? You just kill a person. You are to be trained in that position. 
automatically trained in the position in which you're working with human lives. This is a, the VA hospital should be on the same level uh, as any Georgetown uh, hospital medical center, Hopkins Medical Center, I believe in California. But it's not. This is the, this is the tragedy, and that's the right. point I want to make. How is it that the value of our veterans' lives, they should be at the top, at the, but given the very best care for the sacrifices that have been made for this country. That this is this is sick, and that's why they're you know everybody's uh, pushing to privatize, so that the veterans uh, will get the care that they deserve. Because when you keep it at at VA level, don't get me wrong, VA is trying to do some good things, but if you can't pay that doctor what they're being paid on the street, they're not gonna they're not gonna care as much for the soldiers. As, let me, let me as, they do, as they would with the civilians. The VA hospital is supposed to be, are they ran by civilians? They're, yes, they hire civilians. But what I'm saying Who is. hires? We the, have the OP, Department of Veterans o, yeah, Affairs. OPM or okay, Department so of Veterans. This, this is my point. The Department of Veteran Affairs is responsible for who they put in those slots. Exactly. If I hire at a private hospital. If I hire somebody who is not qualified, who cannot do the job. Now, medical uh, stuff is supposed to be really, really intense, especially when you're dealing with patients, you're dealing with medication, you're dealing with procedure. If that nurse is, that's why you go to school. I'm going to school to be a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a medical assistant, whatever, whatever it is. I'm supposed to be trained in that job. If anything was to happen at Memorial Hospital or any hospital, private hospital, uh, St. Francis, whatever, I promise you, oh, uh, there would be swift action taken. The problem I have with this is that this is an ongoing issue with VA hospitals. Ongoing what these people do constantly. They've been on investigation by the, by the, by the uh, Department of Veteran Affairs Congressional Committee in Washington. Constantly, something is going on at these facilities. That's a problem, and that falls on, at the feet of the president. It falls at the feet of, 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 of members of Congress. Whoever oversees the conduct uh, at these hospitals uh, should be held accountable for this. This is, you got two men's body that have been uh, uh, exhumed, and they find insulin in non-diabetic veterans. So it, it makes you wonder too. Could I mean, was that intentional? Maybe this was. Uh, yeah, they said this guy intentionally yeah, injected I, these uh, these individuals with insulin. I mean, he basically was. Yeah, I mean, he set up to murder the people. So I mean, right, that's why they have him up on at least two of the Homicide murder charges. Him. Yeah, because they found eleven individuals that have uh, heightened doses of insulin. At least two of them didn't have diabetes at all so they they that's why they bring them up on homicide charges because why did you inject a patient because he's a caretaker why did you inject a patient with insulin that doesn't have diabetes is not on his chart is not one of his uh one of his uh, daily drugs to take why did you do it that's why they bring them up on the homicide because the thing is like this even that argument that he made early about uh getting paid better at a private hospital if you don't like your job, look for a new job. But you don't, as you're on the job you're on, just, well, I don't like to pay. 
let me do a bad job. Well, you agreed to work here. If, if you worked at, I mean, hey, I worked at hamburger joints flipping burgers. I didn't like the job, but I still did a good job until I could get a better one. So it's not an excuse to like, well, I didn't like this patient, so I kill him. Yeah. Go and, get and, another job. I mean, I don't think it's you know, like that. I think, again, it's uh, the workload is huge. And, and, and I'm not excusing. I'm not excusing performance, but what I'm saying is, if if you if if they're hiring, because I mean we we need the doctors, we need the nurses, and we hire them to take care of our veterans, but we're not paying them what they should be paid. Then what happens is, it's kind of like you know, bring one in here. Okay, get you out of here. I got thirty. I got I got ten minutes with you. Ten minutes with the next. 10. You don't have to take the job. Exactly. You don't have to take the job. And I agree. What they, they have to look at it, too. That soldier at one time was dodging bullets for way less I, than what I, that doctor's making. I agree. Here's, here's you know, the tragedy, and William, I agree. I'm, William, I'm coming to you. Here's the tragedy. If you injected these folks with insulin, you have a knowledge of, of, medi- of, medi- of the medical uh, situation. Yeah. Because somebody like me, before whatever, you know, before becoming diabetic or whatever, I, knew not, I didn't know insulin was a poison thing that can kill you so this was this is this would be honestly first degree murder this is an act of premeditation so once you inject that guy you know exactly what you're doing i as a lay person would have any would not have any idea so i wouldn't think to inject him with insulin go ahead william no i one of the things i wanted to bring up is that a lot of the people that work in the va and I've, i've seen this myself are prior duty so they're civilians. Oh, right? Yes, they're civilians, and they they've spent some time. So they're they are in and of themselves veterans, but their attitude and spirit around helping people is virtually none. Now I'm not I'm not saying I'm not saying all of them, but I've seen this firsthand. So you see guys at the clinic uh, here, and there's a lot. The lobby is full, and there's just people walking by, not willing to help, not willing to say, "Hey, how you doing? Can I bring you some water?" I mean, we, even when I when I had to go in there before to get fingerprints and stuff like that done, they don't really care. It's 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 there's there's a lot of this that goes on, and this is the unfortunate thing. So it starts from the bottom and goes up, or you could say from the top and comes down. But there's a lot of veterans. When you see these guys, you walk in and you see a man that's in his nineties and he's wearing a World War II hat. I talked to a gentleman. He said he was 17 years old at the Battle of the Bulge. Man, it was, he was 97 years old. He's sharing with me this time in his life. And I just sat there and listened to him and talked to him. That's all he really wanted. He was sitting in the cafeteria. He just wanted someone to share with, to talk to. So there's a lot that, that goes on here with these, like Kendrick said, these men and women have been in combat situations. And all they're looking for is someone, is a kind ear. Well, a kind word, and no one's willing to give it to him. Well, go ahead, Samson. Well, no, I was just going to say that, I mean, the the way the system is set up, I mean, it, it's set up to do this to the veterans. I mean, they're, they are treated like just a number. You know, they're, they're looked at, you know, by the vast majority of society because they know we get disability ratings. They know we get disability checks, and they're looking at us as a drain, you know, on them. So they're looking at, oh, you're getting free money. What do you need this? You're getting your free health care. What else do you, you know? Basically, what else do you want? Now, it's in the VA's best interest because they get paid on a per-case basis for treatment. 
So even if they only give you 10 minutes, they're getting paid. So it's in their best interest to keep a long line waiting. Sometimes, you know, like we're like, you know, we've seen years and years and years worth of wait lists because that's how they're getting paid. That's how they're getting their money. Doctor at a private hospital, he gets paid for the quality of care. He's on his salary for the quality of care and knowledge and stuff that he brings to his patients to help treat them, you know, versus these guys. It's 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 money by numbers. That's all it is to them. And each veteran, unfortunately, is just another greenback that the VA is trying to put in their in the in here's, their, their here's, treasury. Here's what I don't understand. How in the world do you possibly come to a conclusion as a society? What else do you want? You know, you're getting a free check. Did you pay the price these veterans paid? Was your life on the line as these veterans' lives were every single day when they were in active duty? That they could get a call at any time to go to war? Were you at basic training when these guys first went in and took an oath to defend this country? For anybody to sit back and say, well, what, you know, so yeah, fight for us and put your hand on your chest at the national anthem and say, I, I, you know, God bless America, but you treat your veterans like trash. What is the point of the anthem? The anthem is to say, we appreciate what you have done. That flag does not stand for what it used to stand for in this country. And if the country does this to their own, who were on the front lines, many of them, as you said, William, the guy, I don't, I don't ever fail to stop and say thank you when I see a man or woman in uniform. Thank you for your sacrifice, whether you ever stepped on a field or not. I see the uniform. Thanks for your service. Thanks for your sacrifice. Because at any given time, we have lost a lot of people. That's right. Kids, you know? I used to see things on, uh, on the news when we were first in the, uh, in the conflict with the Rock years ago. And you'll have every evening, the CBS Evening News put on there, soldiers that were lost today in this war, 19, 20, 24, 22, kids, but soldiers that took an oath. The way our veterans have been left behind is a disgrace. We're gonna deal with that on the other side of the break, folks. America's veterans left in harm's way. What is going on in this country? And we will be the first to stand up and salute the flag, honoring our veterans. We'll, we have a holiday, honoring our veterans. We'll get them off the streets where they have no place to lay their head but in a park or on a cement floor. You want to honor our veterans? Do something. We're going to deal with that on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. and welcome to Career Day. I hope you're excited to hear about all the great things you can do when you grow up. Hi everyone, I'm Emily. I'm super excited to introduce my dad because he's my hero. When I was little, my dad was away a lot, but I was okay with that because he was doing this really important work driving ambulances in Iraq. Now he's at home. 
which is great for me because I get to see him every day now. And he's still the biggest hero I know because he tells all the ambulances and the fire engines where to go and rescue people when there's an emergency. I'm so proud of him. He's awesome. He's my dad. If your service-connected disability prevents you from continuing in your civilian career, Voc Rehab offers counseling, training with a living allowance, education, and other services to help prepare you for your next mission. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children as they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. You can tell a lot about someone by what they spend their money on, their priorities, their concerns, and their motives. Big Pharma says their top priority is research and development. They say that prescription drug costs are so high because they spend so much on research. But the simple truth is nine out of the 10 biggest pharma companies spend 50% more on advertising than they do on research and development. It's true. Tens of billions more. The more they spend, the clearer it becomes. Big Pharma's priorities are more ads, more sales, and higher costs to you. It's time for Big Pharma to get their priorities straight. Americans deserve open and honest prescription drug pricing. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit CSRXP.org. In the fabric of America, they are the toughest threads. One of the first things they learned was the code that every service member lives by. Leave no one behind. Now all of us need to live by it too, because some veterans are being left behind. 20 of them take their own lives every day. Learn how to be there for a veteran at BeThereForVeterans.com. Honor the code. Be there. Leave no one behind.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. As we are, to be honest with you, saddened tonight by this show that veterans are, are being mistreated in America. Men and women who chose by choice to fight for this country and to be at their post and on call at any given moment to protect the freedom that we share. The VA Department of Veteran Affairs is under major fire due to really, in my opinion, a violation of law in treating citizens uh, with medical conditions. Travis, an Army veteran from Arizona, writes at the VA in Arizona, I went in for routine diabetes eye exams and they found blocked blood vessels in my right eye. They said I showed signs of blocked arteries and would schedule further testing. That phone call didn't come until two years later when the scandal started. Then my phone was ringing off the hook. The surgery went well, but the patient rooms were so filthy. I've seen dog kennels cleaner than these rooms. That probably explains why I, am, why I went home with an eye infection and I refuse to ever go back to that VA. This is a soldier. Susan, an Army veteran in California, I've dealt with unbelievable malpractice at my local VA. All offices refuse to even speak to me. I cannot get service for any health issues that I have. This is, it. This, this is shameful. Valentine, Army veteran in Kansas says, recently I called for medication which I need for diabetes and for my usual diabetic shoes. The answer for my shoes, which I've been getting for eight years, was, we don't think you qualify. In all the years I've been going to the VA, I don't understand why they don't read your files. This is, this is true incompetence. And it's deliberate incompetence. You're treating, look, take veteran off of here and just treat, say, human being. You treat a person that's in need of care? You can't do that. And I'm, I'm telling you, this is why this country is bankrupt when it comes to doing the right thing. And we talk all of this stuff. This is why Senator McCain was livid about these things. He was very upset, part of the Department of Veteran Affairs congressional team. And this is in his backyard, the first uh, gentleman I spoke about. Uh, this, is, this is horrible. Samson, your thoughts? For me, I mean, it, it just it just seems like par for the course. I mean, uh, when I got out of the military, I, uh, a part of my VA claim was uh, a respiratory con condition caused by some of the burn pits that we were exposed to during, um, during deployments. Um, my first appointment for that was I believe earlier this year um, and I've been out of the military now for almost seven years um, I've still got two more appointments coming up and my next one after these two uh, early next month will be sometime early 2020 so the delay in care the misreading of your records and stuff like that I mean it is a travesty but 
for veterans that are going through the system, it's almost become par for the course. I mean, it's, it's sickening when I have to sit there and make sure I maintain a copy of all my own stuff and hard copy so I can show them, like make a copy of it and bring it to them to make sure that they get my treatment right. These are, these are medical professionals, or at least they're supposed to be, and they're supposed to be taking care of us. They're supposed to be fighting for us because we fought for them. And the fact of the matter is that when we have people being given the wrong medication, when we have to specifically ask for non-opioid medication, when we have to tell them the name and memorize the names of our own medication so they don't screw it up, it's sickening. It's absolutely sickening. Then the fact of the matter is that, you know, at a whim, they're allowed to just reschedule on us, and then it's another few months down the road before we're seen. You know, we're, we're not treated like we have any level of, of importance uh, at all in this country. Once we come home, once we've gone to war, once it's completely changed us and we come home, it's like, okay, well, there's your check. Go take some, you know, some Motrin or whatever like that and get on with your life. It's not that easy. It's not that simple, especially for those that have seen combat, especially with those that have, you know, these mental disorders, you know, traumatic brain injuries, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, levels of anxiety, depression, and stuff like that, things that they've experienced that people that only are a veteran could ever really correlate with, you know, or a trained professional could correlate with to help them get through it. But they're not doing that. They're failing us day in, day out, you know, at locations all across uh, the United States. L.A. has been a great example. Phoenix was a great example. Even I think some around the greater D.C. area have all been great examples of how we as veterans are being failed tragically. No, for sure. And um, as an American citizen, uh, my father was military, who we lost in 1994. Um, My dad was a proud soldier. I can tell you of a certainty his outrage and what that would be if he was here to see what these things that are going on when he proudly defended this nation. Two tours in Vietnam, his life on the line. I was fortunate that my father suffered no injuries that hindered him. But I'm disgusted and when I tell you I'm saddened because I knew the type of soldier my father was and the sacrifices that were made through the years that many times my mother will reference to this day. And um, it's, it's, I didn't expect this show to be as heartbreaking as it is to me right now. What do you say to the families who entrusted your care at that VA hospital with their loved one, their dad, their brother, their their sister, whoever, and had to go through the agony, which I would believe to exhume a body is agony. Because you're going through the loss of that loved one all over again, only to find that your loved one didn't have to die. He didn't have to die. He comes home from whatever conflict he may be in, whatever battle he may be fighting to defend this nation. 
and you're grateful and you say, well, dad made it home. He gave years of service only to be killed in a VA hospital by somebody that perhaps should have never been there at all. We talked earlier, I mentioned Senator John McCain, a great patriot of this country, spoke about and condemned uh, the slow response in medical care for America's veterans. Let's hear a little bit from the late Senator John McCain on this issue. Mr. Chairman, yesterday the front page of the Arizona Republic reported that there was a $2.5 million settlement to an individual named Steve Cooper, an Army veteran of 18 years. Steve waited for almost two years before seeing a doctor at the Phoenix VA. By the time he received care, his routine urology appointment had turned into a diagnosis of terminal cancer. Everyone in this room has heard a similar story. It's not acceptable, it needs to be stopped, and I want to thank every member of this committee for their dedication to our veterans and to make sure that never again are there is another Steve Cooper who served his country with honor and then because of a failure to get an appointment as, terminal, as terminally ill. He wasn't alone in his need for care. In 2014, our country was shocked to learn that Steve was one of 15,000 veterans standing in line for care in Phoenix, 3,300 of whom were urology patients. This disgrace served as a catalyst for the Veterans Access Choice and Accountability Act that created the Veterans Choice Program, which has enabled veterans to see providers in the community for their health care needs. More than 7 million appointments with community providers for everything from diagnostic tests and urology screenings to life-saving heart and cancer treatment has been a result. There's been significant progress improving veterans' health care. We've got a long way to go to change the status quo plaguing the VA. And that's why I know none of us will abandon our effort to provide choice and flexibility in veterans' health care and why we must continue the hard work of refining and improving the veterans' care choice, uh, choice program. We need, as, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, reauthorize the Veterans' Choice Program, which is set to expire in a few short months. If we let the program lapse, hundreds of thousands of veterans will lose their ability to visit a community provider. The VA system will once again become overwhelmed. I come from a rural state. Members of the committee come from large and small states. I don't want to have a veteran to drive for 50 miles or 40 miles by route in order to go to the VA when he can go to a local health care provider. It isn't as more complicated uh, than that. Could I say that choice operate authorization uh, expiration is approaching? I understand the VA already has begun limiting care under the Veterans Choice Program for veterans whose treatments would extend beyond August 7th. 2017. I think that lends urgency to your, uh, to your action. I'm concerned that veterans nationwide may, may encounter significant lapses in care if we don't act quickly. The outcome is not only avoidable, but it's unacceptable, and we Congress and Congress must ask. Today, I was pleased in the Senate side 
where the place where the snobs reside. We took a critical step forward by joining Senate Veterans Affairs Committee Chairman Johnny Isaacson, Ranking Member John Tester, Senator Jerry Moran, and others to introduce the Veterans Choice Program Improvement Act, companion to what you are doing, Mr. Chairman, you and the members of the committee. Let me be clear. No one is advocating that we privatize the VA. Many veterans are satisfied with the VA, known for providing superior specialized treatment in the areas of mental health, post-traumatic stress disorder, and traumatic brain injury. At the same time, we can't afford to go back to the pre-scandal days when a VA bureaucrat had the final say on where and when a veteran received care. Such thinking was what resulted in nearly 15,000 veterans standing in line for care in Phoenix. I know this committee agrees, as does Secretary Shelton, and I look forward to working with all of you and my colleagues in the Senate to extend the Veterans Choice Program and continue to keep faith with our nation's veterans. My dear friends, the world is in turmoil, and I believe that we will be sending our young men and women into harm's way in a lot of places in the world for years to come and they will be veterans, and they'll come home someday. And I believe that the work that you are doing is the Lord's work, because you are committed, as all Americans are, to giving the veterans the care that they need and deserve and they earn by defending this nation. What a great... uh... What a great man, Senator John McCain, uh, caring without question in his, in his condemning of these actions and this behavior. Uh, he will be sorely missed uh, on, the, on Capitol Hill without question uh, for, the, for the commitment that I see very clearly uh, that he had to, uh, to care for veterans and to fight for them, uh, not only in his home state, but across this country. We're going to take a quick break. We're coming back with some breaking news that has been brought to the attention uh, of AJC Radio. Emily England Clyburn, longtime wife of South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn, has died at the tender age of 80 this morning. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we continue America's Veterans Left in Harm's Way. We'll be right back. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize your message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can add value to your workplace. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization. If I'm not given the opportunity, If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it worked. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. Gotcha. <laughs> I surrender, I surrender. 
Get ready for the day, buddy. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Do we have a gun? What's up? Do we have a gun? Why do you ask that, kiddo? Can I play with it? No. No, absolutely not. It's not a toy. You know that. Do I? I bet it looks like one. Yeah, well, it's not. Anyway, I need it to protect you, your sister and mom. From what? From bad guys, like on TV. But what about the eight kids who got shot every day by mistake? Their daddies probably thought they were safe, too. Where'd you hear that? TV. Yeah, well, maybe we don't believe everything we hear on TV. Where do you keep it? <laughs> it's hidden. I bet it's on the top shelf of the closet, under your sweatshirts. Is it loaded? It's not. I, I keep the bullets. In the boots with the red laces, and the chest beside the bed. I haven't found them yet, but I'm sure I can. You always told me to be curious. Remember when I found my Christmas gift? I'm a good climber, you know. No. No, that's not what I meant. Look, I, I need to be ready if someone breaks in. But what about when it's just me and Mom? You taught me to be brave. I could use a gun to protect her. No, Justin, I promise. I'll teach you how to handle a gun when you're old enough. And what if I don't make it to old enough? I could get bullied and decide it's too much for me. It would be so easy with our gun. Our gun? No, buddy. My gun. But it is our gun in our home. Happens all the time. I'll make sure that doesn't happen. I'm always here for you. But, Dad, you're not always here. Say goodbye to affordability and say hello to losing control. Discover Price Gougesol, the latest outrageously expensive drug from Big Pharma. It's impossible to afford and reverses the ability to pay other bills because drug companies raise prices to pay for commercials like this one. Side effects may include overdrawn bank accounts, bad credit scores, higher health care costs, children who don't get Christmas presents, and in some cases, the need to stop taking your medicine. If you experience any of these side effects, contact your financial advisor right away. Out-of-control drug costs are no joke. Yet nine of the ten biggest pharma companies spend more on advertising than research and development. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit csrxp.org. Welcome back to AJC Radio tonight. As we said prior to the break, uh, some breaking news coming into AJC Radio tonight. Passing of Emily England Clyburn, longtime wife of South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn, dies at the tender age of 80 years old. Emily England Clyburn, a former librarian and the longtime wife of, wife of South Carolina's U.S. Representative Jim Clyburn, died Thursday morning in Columbia. She was 80 years old. The couple celebrated their 58th wedding anniversary in June. A cause of death was not immediately announced. Emily Clyburn, a Monks Corner native known affectionately by many as Miss Emily, 
or Dr. M, was a public school librarian in Columbia and Charleston before spending 29 years at a medical, as a medical librarian at the Charleston Naval Base and Dorn VA Medical Center in Columbia. In a 2007 interview with NBC News, Jim Clyburn recalled meeting Emily at a courthouse in 1960 after he had been arrested in Orangeburg for, for staging sit-in protest against segregated businesses during the Civil Rights Movement. We had been in jail all night and they hadn't fed us all day, he said. I was standing there and I said to nobody in particular, boy, am I hungry. And there was this little 95 pound person standing nearby. Next thing, she is back with a hamburger. She offered it to me, then pulled it back. She tore it in half, gave me one half and kept the other half for herself. We were married a year later, he said. Clyburn extensively detailed his relationship with Emily in his 2014 autobiography, Blessed Experiences, writing that Emily had actually spotted him weeks earlier on a campus at South Carolina State University holding hands with another young lady. Emily Clyburn, wife of U.S. Congressman James Clyburn, waves at the 43rd annual Martin Luther King Jr. Tri-County uh, service at the Morris Street Baptist Church in 2015. She told her roommate, Eleanor Sims, that the two of us would make a much better couple, and she intended to do something about it. Clyburn wrote, for the first of countless times over the years to come, Emily proved to be right. We bid Emily Clyburn a final farewell, and may you rest in peace. Our prayers and thoughts go out to the Clyburn family, uh, to Congressman Clyburn, who we have had the honor and the privilege. Uh, Cliff, when we were in Washington, we sat down with, with uh, Congressman Clyburn. Uh, the memories are vivid, uh, and they're vivid to me for this reason as well. Uh, Lawana Banks-Clark, my sister, who we lost nine months ago, was in that meeting with Congressman Clyburn. That was the last meeting we had uh, with him. So, uh, Cliff, uh, what are your memories of, of the congressman? And um, a very, very open guy to us and very uh, respectful to our organization. And while we were there, he gave us the time to do and to speak. And he spoke, again, ultimately resulting in the Spotlight on Capitol Hill show, uh, honoring the congressman. Your thoughts? Yeah, the thing that I remember the most uh, about our meetings with him is his passion for uh, the people of his district. I mean, we talk to a lot of members of Congress, and a lot of them are passionate, but you see why he's been voted in, um, you know, back in the Congress so many times. You see why he overwhelmingly wins the uh, the election in his district, because he's, he, even at his age and, um, you know, the, the age that his wife was, they had... A, it's just an extreme passion for the people that are there. They they genuinely care for the people in their district, what they're going through, uh, how their lives are are being affected by the by the legislation that that uh, he presents and upholds. So that was the I believe the biggest thing uh, that I remember about Congressman Clyburn is that he he had the people of his district in mind at all times and and uh as you read in that article of mine his wife is the one who continued to push him toward hey you need you need to run again you need to uh continue to make a difference you know from the time that they met with that uh that beautiful story of when they met um you know in the civil rights era fighting for the rights of the people 
uh, there close to home. And it, uh, it just warms your heart to know uh, that she was his inspiration and that uh, she, she was right there by his side until the end. Oh, absolutely right. And uh, uh, again, our prayers, our thoughts are with the family. A very difficult time uh, for the congressman. Uh, our thoughts are with you. And if we have the opportunity, uh, uh, we hope to see him uh, in the weeks, uh, several weeks to come. Um, but our heart goes out. Uh, again, we bid a final farewell uh, to Emily England Clyburn passed away at the tender age of 80 years old. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in a Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything. His family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they've suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. I don't have to tell you about the challenges we face every day. That would be like preaching to the choir. Yeah. Today you have a chance to face the challenge of your risk for diabetes. My dad had diabetes and one in four U.S. adults are at risk, myself included. If you're older than 45 or African American, that risk increases. So here's a chance to ask yourself, what can I do? Talk to your doctor about getting screened and know what your options are. Learn more at AskScreenKnow.com. Within a couple of days of getting there, everybody was sick. After the first Gulf War, thousands of American soldiers returned from Iraq, complaining of a variety of troubling symptoms. My toes, they were cracking and bleeding. Severe body pains. They can't seem to give me a direct answer. Some of these illnesses may be the result of exposure to chemical and biological agents in that region. They weren't told that they were chemical weapons storage sites. They were just told they were ammunition depots, and they blew up those depots. DOD knew dusty agents would make our chemical suits totally and utterly useless. It's almost criminal, the lack of cooperation we've received from various government agencies. They don't want the American public to know what's happening. There's no question about depleted uranium. Those troops are now exposed, and the incidence of severe congenital anomalies has gone up 700%. And the Department of Defense leaders have done everything they can to prevent that information from getting out. Really points to nothing else than conspiracy against the veterans of the United States. We received inoculations. We weren't able to know what they were. Many times the bottles were not labeled. 
the military has been involved in testing of, of biologic agents. Hundreds of thousands of our military have been experimented upon without their knowledge or consent. These patients are infected with a stealth adapted virus. Pathologists that work for the U.S. Army actually hold the patents on the type of particular microbe that we found, and we found that it slowly spread to immediate family members. Something needs to be done before my wife dies, before I die, or any other Gulf War vets die. They have no fight left in them. And they end up homeless. This is where I live here. This is your house or home? How's our government system? Oh, you see it. We live in a society that disposes of our nuisances. And we're finding homeless camps all the time. It's not really living per se, it's just existing. It's a disgrace. Be a veteran. Be a veteran. Living out here in the woods. Because I didn't have an address, I couldn't even get food stamps. So I was like stealing fruit from people's gardens and stuff to survive. Not everybody that's homeless is there by any sort of choice. Lose your house, lose your car, lose your job. Then what you gonna do? I've literally pulled rocket scientists out of the woods. We have one million veterans out of work in the United States. And we're not all alcoholics, and we're not all drug addicts, and we all bust our ass still to get by. The nation needs to know this. There should be no such thing as a homeless veteran. We have 550 people in Congress. Get them out of office. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we have began to talk about uh, veterans left in harm's way, uh, our military, those that have sacrificed really at all uh, to protect the safety and security of this nation are being treated worse than really prisoners of war. Uh, Dennis, we talk about that all the time. What is the uh, treatment of prisoners of war? Well, from what I've seen here, uh, at least what's, what we know is that there's some pretty decent humane treatment, at least that we see, uh, outside of the stuff that was going on with waterboarding and all that stuff that, that was really controversial. But, Dennis, when you see some of this stuff, and we're going to get into some more uh, veterans dying of overdoses, but not from prescription opiates, um, veterans uh, being left at the bottom of the list when it comes to care, uh, there are some prisons across this country that are providing medical care that our veterans are not even getting. Now, I think everybody is entitled, and that's the law, whether you're bound or free, you, you deserve the right to be treated humanely. Uh, the Geneva, I believe, is the, the Geneva Conventions. Yes. Uh, Geneva. Have a guideline, have a type of protocol that that is supposed to be followed uh, nationally and internationally for all over the world that you must adhere to in the treatment of prisoners of war if that is not done and is brought to the attention of the proper people there's a problem how is it do veterans who fight in such wars. Their enemies are treated better than themselves. 
Does that make any sense to you? It doesn't make any sense. And, and what's crazy about it is that uh, our, our military, I mean, like you said, whether, whether they went to war or not, I'm telling you, it's a lifestyle. I mean, you're deployed often. I mean, all you have to add everything together. So it affects them mentally as it is. But then for you to deny health care or to say you prove to me that you need health care. I mean, it's it's like that. You have to like uh, like uh, it was said earlier on the show. You have to actually you actually actually have to show proof to whoever you go to see. Like Samson said that. And if you don't show that proof, you're not getting compensated. They could care less. If you don't have 10 percent or above, they don't even have to see you. I mean, really, you, 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 the VA hospital can turn you away and say, hey, there's nothing wrong with you. And if you don't have a job or money or health care, you're, you're hurting. Well, I remember we did a show. I can't. The name escapes me tonight of the member of Congress that started a uh, I believe it was uh, Senator Dick Durbin that started a program uh, in regards to family members being given medical training to treat injured soldiers when they came home. Uh, I believe it was Senator Dick Durbin. Um, those steps were taken because of, he said there was something that happened. I don't know if it was a letter of some sort that he received where an injured soldier came home and the wife was like, how do I take care of my husband who's injured? There was legislation passed that, would pre- that money was given and funding was given to train these wives of injured soldiers that came home. These type of steps by members on that hill, uh, and we salute Senator Durbin for that. This is something, and that became law. So when those veterans came home, if, if it goes as far as the family getting training to ensure, not only does it relieve the stress from the soldier, who feels like I'm a bother anyway if he comes home missing a leg or he has a major injury or he's suffering from, from uh, post-stress traumatic syndrome, whatever that is, all of those things. How is the VA and the person over the Department of Veteran Affairs in Washington, D.C., how, how is he getting a pass? The, the, the buck has to stop with him. That's why you're over the Department of Veteran Affairs. The fact that this stuff is happening universally across this country, why should a soldier feel anything but welcome and treated with the, you know, they talk about rolling the red carpet out. Why is that not done with our veterans? Because what they have suffered and endured in war and in the years of service, as you said, Dennis, you can speak to it better than yep. you and Samson can speak to it better than anybody. This is a this is a real thing, and to come home and feel forgotten, like man, the the nights that you you went late awake at night looking at your wife's picture, looking at your children's picture, thinking, I may not make it back. That's a price involved. Yep, and being in a foreign country, I mean. Oh you're, my you, God! You are in I a mean, harm's way. Yeah, and you and you don't even understand. You're in a you're in a uh, a country. You can't speak the language. I mean, you're training with the with their military. You're doing all these things. 
Uh, I mean, it, it's and it's crazy because you're gone at you know nine months to a year at a time, and then when you get back, you have to start all over because you have to build your your family, your relationships back up, and then you have to get to know your kids. I mean, if people knew how much is involved with being in the military, just period. Let's not even talk about war. I mean, or or watching your friend die, or or being shot, or losing your leg, or I mean, come on, there, there's so much going on. So you would think that that these hospitals, that these care these, these caregivers would truly take pride in making sure that they do their best for their uh, the veterans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that we've been in this war now for 18 years. And it's only until, you know, recently that they've actually been coming out with adequate programs for people, you know, um, honestly, like myself and you know, a bunch of other people that I went to, to war with. We come back with that with post-traumatic stress disorder. We come back with sleep issues because you have to train yourself to go to sleep with the, the sound of a howitzer going off, you know, golly knows how many feet away from you or, you know, gunfire off way in the distance because you know it's not close enough like psychologically like they are changed physically they come back changed they come back altered they're not they're they're not the same and not only does it affect the the service member that has to come back and adjust his life or her life completely to that but that family support system how do you if you've never been through any training how do you deal with somebody that has nightmares every single night how do you deal with somebody that has that they want to turn to drugs or a bottle or something like that how do you coach somebody away from that stuff and get them back to some sort of normalcy it just it doesn't happen without the proper infrastructure which is what the department of va is here for they're here to support the soldiers their families those that like we've all been saying those that have basically written a blank check up into the total of my life because I care about the rest of my fellow citizens, and that's what we all did. We, we wrote it out there, and we put it on the line, and now we come back, and we're an inconvenience. Kendrick, your thoughts? It's basically the country saying you're better off dying of a war than coming back and surviving with an injury because they don't it's want to horrible. take care of you. Yeah, you got to fight for care, and now what they're doing is you've got your benefits or whatever percentage they give you. Well, then they mysteriously want you to do come in for a new checkup to all of a sudden say that you mysteriously got better and we don't have to, we can give you less money, less treatment. And, and that's another trick they're playing. It's like, wait, as I'm getting older, I'm not improving. So how is it all of a sudden now that that problem that you know I got during wartime or just being in service is just mysteriously healing itself even though you're not giving me the treatment that I need, you're not giving me the medication that I need, but I'm just getting better on my own. And it's, it's sad that it just comes down to you're just a dollar sign. You're just another uh, bill that we're trying to pay off and we ain't got to deal with you anymore. It's sad. So you go to war, some of them. You commit such and such amount of years to the United States Armed Services. And they throw you away as soon as you get back home. That is sick. And then we go into the homeless situation. That is so egregious why am I looking for a place to live so then you got people mistreating homeless people on the streets you may kick a homeless person get out of the way 
get them off the streets where that person may have provided the freedom in which you sleep under every night. Let's talk a little bit about the homeless situation in our country with veterans. Let's hear it. Troops in Iraq, their job, of course, is to complete the mission. Their hope is to come home. For some, the journey back is full of setbacks and unwelcome surprises. For some, they wind up homeless. A small number of Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan vets are turning up homeless these days. Their veterans uh, just return back. Maybe they live even near you, living on the streets. Tonight, you're going to meet one of them. There are two things National Guard Corporal Joe Ricaldo never dreamed he'd see. The sun setting over Iraq and the sun setting over his 98 Plymouth, the car he now calls home. I never thought, like after the ball was dropped, you're out here in this parking lot. I never thought I'd be here. You know? The long road to get here, a parking lot in Jones Beach, New York, began two years ago in Iraq. So you were in the sling here? Yeah, actually in that top piece, uh -huh. gun turret. Joe was the gunner in this Humvee when his vehicle took a sharp turn and flipped. His body was nearly crushed underneath. I just remember I couldn't move anything. I couldn't breathe. I was bleeding. You know, I just felt blood all over me, my face. And I squeezed out the words, you better get a medevac fast, because I thought that was it. Joe suffered traumatic brain injury, broke his back, all his ribs, and shattered his left arm. He was unconscious for days. They told my sister they were going to fly her out there. I wasn't going to make it. But to the surprise of his own doctors, he survived. Over many months, doctors pieced him back together, using metal rods and screws to fuse his spine and metal plates to hold his shattered arm together. So you got a lot of metal in you. A lot of metal. Could probably build a small Eiffel Tower with a hardware. Yeah. Today, every step hurts, but Joe remembers when he could run on this beach for miles. Me and my friend, we used to go eight miles that way. Joe can't lift more than 10 pounds, so he couldn't go back to being an auto mechanic. Instead, he took a job with the National Guard patrolling Penn Station in New York. He says he lasted six months before landing in the hospital again with back pain and a bone infection. And at that point, I gave up. I simply gave up. I know I can't work. I have no income coming in. I'm finished. What he had coming in was $218 a month from a disability check. So it wasn't long before Joe, at age 50, ended up homeless. This is my clothes closet here. The trunk is your closet? Yeah, forgive me, the maid never showed up. Not a fire when I get a hold. <laughs> Joe says he's looked for part-time work with no luck. Hey, Joe. Hey, Bo. How are you? He has one sister and a few friends who have offered to help, but he's too proud to accept it and too proud to stay in a shelter. So he spends most days alone, a stranger in his hometown of Hicksville, New York, on Long Island. One possible reason for his withdrawal, Joe was recently diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. I just don't belong. I don't feel I belong anywhere around here. Joe is one of an estimated 600 homeless veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. That's not many compared with the 200,000 or so from all wars who are currently homeless. But these vets are showing up even more quickly than after Vietnam, a war that left nearly 70,000 homeless, an even greater number than died in combat. If the experience with Vietnam is any predictor, I am very worried about the numbers of, of, of homeless veterans or people at risk of being homeless who are returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. 
The Department of Veterans Affairs is working to avoid a repeat of what happened after Vietnam. There was a delayed effect uh, with a lot of veterans after Vietnam. We know that. We've, we've studied it. We've learned from that. And so that's why we're trying to intervene now uh, right away. The VA spent more than a billion dollars on homeless programs last year, but some veterans still fall through the cracks. Misclassified, as the VA now says Joe was, unable to receive full compensation. You feel sort of like you got lost in the system? Absolutely. Lost. I'm still lost. I'm still dizzy for what happened. And sick and tired of fighting for benefits. Last month, though, Joe's persistence began to pay off. His disability status was raised from 20% to 60%, or $873 a month. But as Joe puts it, in New York, that is just enough to either afford an apartment or eat, not both. I'm disgusted. And it's not because I'm a veteran or a soldier or somebody who served. That means nothing. You know, we choose to go. No one forces us to go. I'm just saying you, got, you should be treated like a human being, for God's sakes. It's all I want. And then I think about the other veterans from other wars, and they're still fighting to this day. It's just, it's horrible. And I had to live it. It was only after CNN made repeated inquiries about this case that the VA called to inform us that Joe would finally be granted full 100% disability status, retroactive to March and worth $2,600 a month, meaning he may actually get to sleep in a real bed very soon. When we called Joe with the news, he said he'll believe it when he gets the first check. The war in Iraq may have broken his body, but it's the fight here at home that's come close to breaking his spirit. Well, there you have it. Um, heartbreaking. His home is his car. And the sad part of this, once CNN began to press, and only then did he ultimately end up, at least in word, told that his benefits, I mean, from $800 a month, from $278 a month to, to $600 or $828 or whatever, to $2,600. It's a big jump, but you're talking about New York City. Cost of living is not a game over there. Um, Dennis, give me your thoughts. When he says he feels like I don't fit in. I don't fit in when I fought on the front lines and was almost killed. I come to a country, home, where I don't fit in? That should never, ever be the thought of a, of, of a veteran of this country. And it happens, and it, it happens all the time because again, uh, you go away, uh, you serve your country, you go through all, all kinds of stuff, and uh, if you don't get education while you're in, if you came in and you didn't have a skill, you leave without a skill. I mean, you, you know, you think of the infantry guys and, you know, the, the combat armed guys. I mean, if they don't get a skill while they're in, when they get out, that, that, they don't have a skill. So and what happens is like, you know, him living out of his car. And then if you really look at it, twenty six hundred dollars a month at 100 percent. 
Wow, I mean that 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 doesn't that's not going to keep you. I mean, depending but, on where but, you, you know, depending on where you live in. In New York, right. twenty six hundred dollars a month. That's a studio. Yeah, I mean, you got car payment, you got a place to live, you got to have food. Insurance. Oh, it's just. But to them, hey, take this. We did our part. See you. And I'm curious to know what does twenty six hundred a month come to in a year? Yeah. It's thirty thousand. Yeah, thirty thousand dollars a year. So I, I'm trying to figure out That's when good. we put a price tag. So the life of a veteran, the price he's paid in war, the price he's pays every day is being on call to protect his country. This man suffered a major injury and goes further to say that he was his body was almost mm. crushed. He had severe back issues, tried to get a job, lasted six months. The back pain was so severe he could not endure it. Suffered from a bone disease. Um, how do you put a price tag, America, on the price of a veteran? How do we price human life? It is, it breaks my heart. Because I know in that moment when his truck flipped, his life had to flash. Yep. That, and he said, you better call whoever because this is it. You come back to the place in which you took an oath. And you are reduced to living in a car. We spend money on everything else in this country. You cannot set a plan in place for the veterans who have sacrificed their lives. This man will never be the same. But you hand him a check and he said, I'll believe it when I get it. Because the Department of Veteran Affairs is full of promises. They don't have a good track record. No, not at all. Not at all. But what happens in the meantime of this veteran, and he might as well be my dad, because that's how it's he's somebody's dad, somebody's child. We have lost the human spirit in this country for caring. We talked earlier about Senator John McCain passing legislation, introduces legislation. Care Veterans Deserve Act of 2016. There shouldn't be a veteran that comes home that does not have a job waiting when he gets here. Shouldn't. To have to come back and deal with the mental anguish of combat, knowing that tonight may be the night I never see my, da my daughter or my son again or my mom, or my dad. Senator John McCain, we salute you tonight, though you are gone, for fighting for the rights of veterans and never taking down his entire, because you know why? Senator John McCain was a prisoner of war. Yep. He came back with an with the injury to his arm, P 
paralyzed in part. And he never ceased to fight because he lived it. If I'm going to find somebody to run the Department of Veteran Affairs, give me a John McCain. Because they won't rest till justice is done for our veterans. I believe that wholeheartedly. Let's hear Mr. Senator McCain. Uh, he talks about, introduces the Care Veterans Deserve Act of 2016. Let's hear what he had to say. I'd like to thank uh, Senator Flake and Tillist and Senator Ernst. His uh, gonna, she's providing what she'd be here. And I'd also like to thank Senators Ayotte, Graham, Cornyn, and Cruz for co-sponsoring this legislation. Legislation we are introducing is an all of the above approach to improving access to care at the VA. We developed this legislation after speaking directly to veterans about the problems they experience every single day. Uh, probably the greatest uh, boon to the United States economy took place following World War II when we gave the and legislation concerning the GI Bill, which gave every veteran the opportunity to exercise their choice and to pick the educational institution that they wanted. Uh, that resulted in a tremendous boon to our economy and, of course, was so important to our veterans. This is all about choice. This is all about whether a veteran should be forced to go to a, uh, a single place where they would receive medical care or whether they would have a choice to go to the medical <coughs> facility that they think best uh, suits them. This uh, obviously is uh, important, but most importantly, our veterans who have been able, and some have not been able, despite legislation, to take advantage of the choice card have universally uh, been in favor of it. Uh, today, they're still facing obstacles to accessing and using the choice card due to the 30-day, 40-mile restrictions that are currently in place. And it's important that we allow every veteran, no matter where they are geographically, to access to the health care of their choice. I refuse and we refuse to send our veterans back to the status quo of never-ending wait times for appointments and inflexible care. This bill would repeal 30-day, 40-mile restrictions and make the program permanent. I might remind uh, people that uh, after the scandal that took place at the Phoenix VA where 50 veterans died while on a non-existent waiting list, I negotiated with Senator Sanders, who was then chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee. Part of the compromise was that there would be the 30 mile, 30 mile and 40 day, 30 day and 40 mile restriction was part of the compromise. We have now proven that the choice card uh, should be universal no matter where our veteran is geographically or timing. Uh, the bill would require the VA to 
allow veterans to walk in to visit walk-in clinics without needing an appointment or pre-authorization from the VA. Under the current system, veterans who develop a cold and can't get an appointment first have to visit the emergency room. We've heard from veterans who have waited for 14 hours in the ER without being seen. The Care Veterans Deserve Act will enable veterans to visit walk-in clinics without an appointment, would extend VA clinic and pharmacy hours to nights and weekends. There are many veterans who are working and don't have, unable to take a day off uh, from their jobs for an appointment to obtain a prescription from the pharmacy. It will also free up appointments at the VA for veterans in need of care. The bill would allow VA healthcare professionals licensed, registered, or certified in one state to use telemedicine to provide treatment to veterans in other states. We have remote areas of Arizona that telemedicine is by far the most effective way to, to treat those with illnesses and those veterans. And if there is a professional that is not from Arizona that can provide that kind of advice and counseling and care, that should happen. The system should go, uh, and this is very important, the VA healthcare system should undergo a best practices peer review by the best hospital networks in the nation, such as Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, or MD Anderson. Those reviews will begin at VA hospitals with the longest wait times or, worth, or that has the worst health outcomes so we can prioritize improvements. Um, this effort that we've been making, uh, I believe, has, has shown some progress. But I think facts remain that we have a long way to go. We've learned a lot of lessons since our first VA reform bill passed. Now we need another VA reform bill to take advantage of lessons learned. I think one of the first indications of real progress for all of us will be when veterans feel that they don't have to contact our offices. We still, in my office, are handling as many as 500 veterans' cases in, uh, at one time, and that hasn't decreased. The day that it decreases, I think, will be the day that we will have shown some progress in care for our veterans so that they are not required to come to our offices, which many of them view as a place of last resort. We have a long way to go. We've made some progress. We need to pass this legislation if we are going to provide our veterans with what they have earned. April 2014, Gulf War veteran Chris Corkman, 52, had total knee replacement surgery at his VA hospital in Grand Junction, Colorado. This, he says, was four months after he'd shown up in agony at the VA's emergency room. I woke up on the table while they're pounding on my knee. He felt no pain but was alarmed. My whole body was shaking, he said. I said, I hope they know what they're doing and put my, put my head down. Corvigan didn't file a complaint for the fear his, his follow-up treatments would be delayed or his file would disappear. He spent a couple of more days in the hospital. 
By night two, I was in so much pain, I was in tears. He says, I was thinking of tell, calling 911 to come and get me out of there. Coleman served in Saudi Arabia in 1991 and dates his ailments, which include fatigue, intestinal issues, memory loss, and major joint pain, to exposure to decimated oil fields and other toxic chemicals. But he says a VA uh, knows little about the disorder vaguely known as Gulf War Syndrome and has conducted no major research. In fact, had Corcovin had to tell his nurses and doctors what he could and could not be prescribed. A lot of Gulf War vets were allergic to a lot of medication, he says. Even aspirin will cause his lips to split and his body to swell. He has spent nearly the past four years fighting with the VA for billing his private insurer more than $12,000. And this is what's called the Choice Program, which allows veterans to seek care in the private sector if the VA cannot treat them, but in this case, the VA treated Corcovin. In August 2016, Corcovin filed a Freedom of Information Act request for documents related to his case. Included was this exchange. My suggestion is to make this our last communication with Mr. Corcovin on these issues. VA staffer Paul Sweeney emailed Mark Miguel, then director of the Grand Junction VA on May 10th, 2016. We have only done that with a handful of veterans since I've been there, but it would seem appropriate in this case, although it might be painful in the media for a while. Can somebody explain that to me? Can anybody explain the logic to that? There is no logic. How do you walk into a hospital and you become the doctor on the table? Hey, Lamont, like I mentioned earlier in our broadcast, um, the fact of the matter is that files get passed from person to person and there's no continuity between the records. There's no continuity of care for the veteran we have to know what our what our like he said he couldn't take aspirin um i have to know for myself that i can't be i'm not supposed to be recommended to have opioids and stuff like that so i have to go in there and actually talk to people and let them know versus them taking the time and actually putting some personal thought and care into interacting with their patients they just don't do it okay so well, if you can't take opiates uh or pain medications is, is that what i'm hearing yeah I, I have a, a a very overreaction to uh to opioids okay so if you have major pain uh and you have some type of reaction to pain medication whether it's opiates or whatever that's prescribed right you're just out of luck yeah. so how do you manage the pain would be the question of uh, but again as you say there are no alternatives being sought out they have what they call pain management doctors clinics that give you different things to help manage pain that may not put you in a situation where you're on that medication, since in, in Samson, your case, and probably countless other veterans cannot deal with it. So they're supposed to simply live in pain. This guy went into an emergency room for the VA and did not even get seen to four months after you show up at an ER? But Monty, it actually gets a little bit, a little bit worse than that. And one of the things that that um, I, I knew about was that um, there's a transition once veterans, well, active duty military become veterans. There's not there before the Affordable Care Act. There was not a an exchange. What I'm going to do, William, we're going to finish that. We've got to take a quick break. We're up against the clock on a break. 
Ladies and gentlemen, AJC Radio, talking about something so troubling. Uh, I hope you that hear it tonight will be equally as troubled and outraged and will say something uh, to whoever can do something about this. It's the federal government, uh, and they have failed at their job. It's the bottom line. Uh, if I run a company and I have issues within that building, they're not coming to the janitor. They're coming to the top. Did you know and why is this going on at your company that your name is on? Well, the federal government, ladies and gentlemen, if it says Department of Veteran Affairs, the federal government is liable and the director of the Department uh, of Veteran Affairs should be held accountable. Uh, and those that are no longer in that position, if they fail at their job doing their tenure, they should be held accountable because these are not simply people walking out with a Band-Aid covered injury. These people are dying every day. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're gonna serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. And that's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. And that's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioral problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. And there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people 
behind bars in the United States. I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. We've received a lot of response to our report last month that showed many returning war veterans are receiving lethal amounts of pain medication from VA hospitals. Tomorrow, a House subcommittee will hold a hearing on this. Jim Axelrod broke the story on this broadcast, and since then, he has learned of case after case of veterans who have died following doctor's orders. In the weeks after our investigation aired, we received photos like this one, the daily dosage of pain pills prescribed to a 30-year-old VA patient in Texas. And this one from a 54-year-old VA patient in Oklahoma. These were the medications prescribed to Ricky Green, a veteran of the first Gulf War, for his back pain. Among them, three narcotics. His wife Kimberly describes a visit her husband made to his VA doctors in September of 2011. He wanted to be taken off of this large amount of medicines. What did his doctors and healthcare providers say to him? Basically that he need, needed to continue to take the medication. And all of them? All of them. When he came home, did he continue to take all the medication? He followed the doctor's orders. The next month, Green died in his sleep, accidentally overdosing on a narcotic and a muscle relaxer prescribed by VA medical centers in Arkansas. He was only 43 years old. We had a future together. And this shouldn't have happened. Tomorrow's hearing will examine VA's practice of prescribing pain medications. Congressman Jeff Miller chairs the House Veterans Affairs Committee. Unfortunately, it has become a routine way uh, of dealing with our veterans uh, is to give them a prescription. They walk out the door with, with their medications. And masking the pain only temporarily takes it away. It's not treating the underlying cause. No, and it's the underlying cause that absolutely has to be treated. According to Veterans Affairs, right now, there are two pain management specialists for every 100,000 VA patients. And with more than half of the newest VA patients, those from Iraq and Afghanistan, seeking treatment for pain, 
Scott, the system is only going to grow more overloaded. Jim Axelrod in our Washington newsroom tonight. Jim, thank you. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we continue our veterans, America's veterans left in harm's way, discussing the horrific uh, treatment of America's veterans in this country uh, is a disgrace and a shame uh, to what we call America. Uh, William... um, what other definition would you give that? It, it's it's terrible. I mean, you know, I, I'm i not a veteran. I've never been in. I, I worked at the VA for about nine years. Um, and behind the scenes, you see a lot of things that are it's really jaw-dropping. So as a civilian, you sit there and you um, – it's incredible really to see how – the, the lack of care and urgency, they, uh, it, I mean, it, I, I don't, I'm, I'm really struggling to try to find words here because it was really jaw-dropping for years to see um, veterans go constantly in want and need, and there's no effort to do anything for them. Uh, it's not an effort to provide help for them, and like I said earlier, you know, when I would go to the to the facilities and you're you're dealing with um, you see a veteran and you see them struggling, you see them in different conditions. And it's amazing. But one of the things when I first got there to the point that, that Samson was talking about, as far as in the, the clip that you read, the story you read about the veteran actually having to tell the doctors, one of the things that I learned. And again, this is just my experience, but. DOD and VA did not, before the Affordable Care Act, even share a common electronic medical record format. And what that meant was, is that veterans, as they were getting out, or excuse me, active duty military, as they were getting out, they would basically hand off a bunch of paperwork, their records, to the VA. The VA would sit there and input their, their data. And so some of that information gets lost. Some of the and and it's it they know it it's common so something that happened to that veteran while in combat falls on the floor so any of his treatments any of his medications anything he's allergic to but it, it would go it's gone on for years and and people didn't care about it so you think about this so you think about your story where a veteran has has to literally come in and tell a doctor what he is allergic to what's happened to him. You know, he has to basically be his own medical record. And it's sad. It's sad. And one indication of how veterans are treated, Sergeant um, James Brown 
we've played this clip on other shows. It was a veteran that went in for a weekend check-in at the county jail, I believe for driving, I don't know, I think it was driving uh, while intoxicated or something, uh, which we'll know about when we play this clip. Going to go in for the weekend, come out. He came out in a body bag. That's how he came out. And he asked for a Dixie cup of water. And he had suffered from, I believe, post-stress traumatic syndrome. Let's play the clip. The video of Fort Bliss Sergeant James Brown's death in the El Paso County Jail is going worldwide. Good evening, I'm Erica Castillo. And I'm John Purvis. First on Fox tonight, one week ago, we showed you the jailhouse video of Sergeant Brown's final hours. And the story has now moved far beyond the borderland. News outlets and websites around the world are picking up the story. The Washington Times and the Huffington Post here in the U.S. have been joined by the Daily Mail in Britain and other international websites in telling his story. Hundreds of people around the world have commented on the video as well. And tonight, a former El Paso County Jail Corrections officer speaks up to say Sergeant Brown's death did not have to happen. Erica continues her coverage of this story that you'll see only on KFOX. Fort Bliss is one of the largest military installations in the country. There are about 30,000 active duty soldiers stationed here at any given time. So you may be surprised that when active duty soldiers get in trouble in the civilian world and end up in the El Paso County Jail, there is no one there from the military to check on them. A former corrections officer at El Paso County's jail who has asked for anonymity tells us why he believes that can have deadly consequences. Sergeant James Brown self-reported to the El Paso County Jail for a weekend DWI sentence in July 2012. Documents show Sergeant Brown informed the jail upon arrival that he was diagnosed with PTSD. He was a decorated two-time combat veteran in Iraq. Initially, Sergeant Brown was placed in the general population and it appears he was not coping well. We traveled to Lubbock to interview a then inmate who on that day in July 2012 we verified was in the El Paso County jail cell with James Brown. He claims the inmates were all growing frustrated before Brown was removed. They really weren't feeding you, you know, I think they gave us one sandwich for the whole day, a sandwich and a carton of milk. So some guys were pretty, you know, heated. That guy James Brown, he was there, he was actually about to get released pushed the door, but it was already locked, so he couldn't open it. He pushed the door and he cussed, and he, you know, he's, I don't want to say the words that he said, but he cussed at him and he turned around and walked to the back and just kicked back against the wall. Well, they came in, like three, I think it was three or four of them that opened the door and they came in and they grabbed him. At that time, Brown was placed in a cell by himself. He threw wads of wet toilet paper at the door, somehow caused himself to bleed, and then refused to speak. As far as inmates with PTSD and, and problems of that sort, they're just regular inmates. A former corrections officer at the El Paso County Jail tells KFOX 14 soldiers are never separated from the general population, even when the jail has knowledge they are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. The protocol is the same. Um, when I was still in the department, uh, everything was the same. 
inmates were inmates and whether they were in the military or the only exception was for some law enforcement where they can't be where other inmates are at. After viewing the entire raw video of Sergeant Brown's encounter, he believes Brown being in the general population was not where the issue began. It was here. To have told the inmate that we were going to send somebody in there, when the inmate was in reality already calm, he was resting or sleeping, I couldn't see him, what he was doing, but he wasn't yelling or kicking the door. It wasn't until he was threatened with, with violence to give, him, give himself up that he reacted. What followed was the extraction team storming his cell and Brown immediately stating he was struggling to breathe. Eventually, his limp body was hoisted up and carried to the infirmary, where Brown was sedated twice by injection and begged for water before collapsing and becoming unresponsive. Shockingly, all pretty standard procedure, according to our source, except for one thing. The reaction of the supervisors on scene should have prompted them to take over the situation and call 911. He just stayed in the same position where they left him, and that's, that's a big red flag. Sadly, though, our source says he is not surprised. He says there is no training at the jail for corrections officers or the extraction team on how to deal with soldiers, much less soldiers diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. He claims they barely get any training of any sort at all. They don't get to practice as much. They practice maybe once a week, two, twice, if they're lucky. Um, and they have to do it, you know, after, after the shift. He also says there is no psychiatrist and no official military presence at the jail in the event an active duty soldier is incarcerated, something he believes in this case could have made a difference. In the event that they do have somebody there, it would have to be somebody with uh, rank of an officer to be able to control whoever it is that's there that would uh, create less problems. Fort Bliss, however, disagrees with that assessment. Lieutenant Colonel Lee Peters, who speaks on behalf of Fort Bliss, says that the post does not assign a military liaison to the jail because the percentage of soldiers arrested in El Paso comprises only 1% of the entire number of people arrested in El Paso County each year. Instead, Fort Bliss relies on the El Paso County Jail to inform the post when a detained soldier has been arrested and booked solely for the purpose of reporting procedures. It is unknown if James Brown ever told anyone when he arrived at the jail that he was an active duty soldier. However, it is documented in jail records he informed them of his post-traumatic stress. It's no secret military personnel with post-traumatic stress often experience a host of phobias and at times can react to those situations violently. Besides potential psychological triggers, there may be other issues at stake when a soldier is incarcerated in a civilian jail, given soldiers are considered property of the U.S. federal government. Fort Bliss, however, says it's a matter of jurisdiction. But this former jail guard, who worked for years on the extraction team, says it is a unique problem to cities with military installations that local jails need to address. That hasn't happened yet, and I wish it would. Being a uh, combat disabled veteran myself, I can relate to, to Mr. Brown's uh, problems. So that's why I, I decided to vent what I feel. And I think that if the Army personnel or any military personnel comes in and they claim to PT have PTSD, 
they should be uh, afforded the opportunity to, to stay separate from everybody because just like law enforcement, you know, they, they serve the community and serve the country and as such, they should be treated as such. We're waiting to hear from the El Paso County Jail and the Sheriff about the protocols there and the training, as well as exactly how many soldiers have been incarcerated there in the last three years, how often there is a psychiatrist available at the jail, and what purpose it serves to have soldiers declare they're diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. they didn't show on that video uh, on the audio rather that you didn't hear was the exchange between Brown and these officers as he asked for a cup of water the gentleman goes on to say that Mr. Brown was not combative he was peaceably in his cell and they came with a threat to this decorated soldier. And if you heard him begging for that water, you understand just how labored he was. A life gone that didn't have to go. Not to mention, they said a decorated officer. Um, Dennis, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, you got you got uh, police officers that get sep separated, but you got a soldier that served uh, two tours and, uh, you know, got a mental Ill illness, and uh, he gets thrown in with population, and then uh, they take him away and they abuse him. I mean, just point blank. I mean, we got to be real. And uh, and then to say that, you know, the protocol, everything was followed, uh, I, I don't believe that. Well, I mean, if that's protocol, that's a problem. We, we got a major problem. Listen to this. I want to share this before we wrap up here. Uh, Patrick Nolan is a 75-year-old retired Army colonel. During his 40 years of service, he was stationed in Laos, Iraq, and Kuwait, and also became the first full-time dental surgeon for the Army National Guard. His introduction to the VA healthcare system dates to his retirement in 2006. I started to be very fatigued, Nolan says. He went to the Miami VA uh, where the doctor ordered blood work. He diagnosed Nolan as iron deficient and prescribed B12 injections. Nolan's fatigue got worse. He estimates he returned to his VA at least four or five times and was given the same diagnosis. Nine months in, after pushing back hard, Nolan finally saw a cardiologist. Within 15 minutes of getting the pin prick, the doctor said, how are you still standing? Nolan was bleeding internally. He had a tumor so large, he says it was just about to break out of my colon. The VA almost killed me. In 2009, Nolan came across an article that revealed his VA facility had infected five veterans with HIV, eight with hepatitis C, one with hepatitis B, all through improperly clean colonoscopy equipment. The time frame overlaps with Nolan's diagnosis and he believes his VA uh, put the brakes on colonoscopies which would have diagnosed him sooner while they tried to figure out what happened. Nolan was so upset that he went to see local congressman Eileen Ross Lithian of Florida 
I spoke to an assistant to an assistant, he says. A couple of months later, I got a form letter. Our veterans received the finest care, blah, blah, blah. He thinks 100% of that. VA should be abolished and all veterans be given an insurance card to go wherever they want for care. Four brain surgeries in four weeks. Wow. Let me tell you something. This stuff is criminal. This is criminal. How do you diagnose this man as a B12 deficient soldier, patient? And the tumor is so big, it's about to explode. You know why this goes on and it continues? No accountability. Nothing major that we've ever heard of a sweeping of criminal charges filed in these VA hospitals for people who are responsible. That's unacceptable. We will visit this again. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, please do whatever you can. If you hear about these stories, these atrocities, report them. Talk to somebody. Talk to members of Congress, whoever can make a difference. Uh, this is a tragedy. We've only touched a very, very small amount of, of this story. We intend to deal with it again. Tonight, as we close this show, our condolences again to Congressman Clyburn of South Carolina, to the passing of his wife, Emily Clyburn, dead at the age of 80, no longer with us. Our thoughts and prayers are with the Clyburn family. Until next time, this is AJC Radio. Good night. Fifty-six-year-old Jerome Murdo, a homeless former Marine, was arrested for trespassing at a housing project while looking for a warm place to sleep. He was being held at Rikers Island on $2,500 bail. One week later, on Valentine's Day, he was found dead, wrapped in a blanket in a jail cell that had overheated to at least 100 degrees because of faulty heating equipment. Because it's supposed to be the land opportunity, home of the brave and free. And my brother served in the military. And for that to happen to him, is a disgrace. These veterans have gone somewhere to war and then honorably discharged, and they're discharged to nothing, to nothing, to the streets. Now, many of them end up homeless. We spend all this money on recruitment, the millions on ads to get people to join up, the millions and billions on the equipment to make sure they're well equipped when they're fighting a war. And then they come home and there's no money to give them an apartment and, and some decent opportunities to work. Why are we allowing that to happen? One of the problems we have is that uh, people outside of homelessness think homelessness is contagious. And then they, they view them as other than human. And if they could see up front the challenges that a homeless person faces, they would want to make sure that nobody experience the pain and the suffering of homelessness. It's one of the worst human tragedies in, in uh, the United States. These people are forgotten, and they're Americans, so we can't forget nobody. It's like Vietnam, nobody left behind. The VA hospital in Phoenix is coming under fire once again, two years now after the news first broke of those long patient wait times and a general lack of care. One America's Bobby Dupree has more on a controversial scandal exposing the failing health care system for our nation's veterans. 
Just two short years after the VA hospital in Phoenix was plagued with controversies, it appears nothing has changed as new reforms only turned out to be empty promises. A report by the VA Inspector General's Office released Tuesday stated 215 patients died waiting to receive treatment at the medical center. The report even found one veteran was never offered an appointment that could have prevented his death. According to the report, as of July this year, 38,000 patients were waiting for appointments, up 5,000 in just four months. It also shows nearly a quarter of all consultations in 2015 were canceled, largely in part of employee confusion over outdated scheduling procedures. Two years ago, the hospital system was in the hot seat for similar charges, as it appears nothing has changed. In 2014, an investigation found dozens of veterans died waiting for treatment at the Phoenix VA. Officials were found to be using secret waiting lists to hide the growing backlog of work. The findings are striking because it is a nationwide issue. It's not just at Phoenix or even at there's been problems in Albuquerque and Illinois and some other places that we've written about and that we know about. This is really just system-wide, and some of them have kind of gone under the radar in terms of the local facilities. The Phoenix VA recently hired a new director after firing Sharon Hellman in 2014. But just last week, Nevada senators and four House members voiced their dissent to the newly appointed director, Rima Ann Nelson, in a letter to President Obama and VA Secretary Robert McDonald. They believe her questionable record makes her unsuitable to fill the position and bring the improvement the system desperately needs. The letter details Nelson's involvement in an incident at a VA medical center in Missouri while she was acting director, where unsanitary dental equipment potentially infected 1,800 veterans with HIV, as well as hepatitis B and C. Nevertheless, the VA released their own statement on the Inspector General's report supporting the changes they made since the scandal in 2014 and calling for more support staffing to fill open positions. State Senators John McCain and Jeff Flakes believe accountability must be improved and the system's environment needs to change in order to see significant improvements. In a joint statement released Tuesday, they said, unless and until we provide veterans the flexibility and care they need, reform the culture at the VA, and enforce real accountability, the status quo will continue to fail the veterans we are indebted to serve. Bobby Dupree, One America News. My name is Kyle Evans, and I am a U.S. Army retired staff sergeant. On 10 May 2007, we were delivering uh, portable housing units to a local prison. And uh, on the way back, uh, my driver rolled over top of three sticks of dynamite that were strapped together and it blew up directly underneath my seat. I don't remember anything from the incident. Um, it was knocked unconscious. You know, I'm, I'm 30, 32 with, with 20 spinal taps and a back surgery. You know, it's rough. When I was wounded in, in May of 2007, there was about a 30-month window uh, where I was going through rehabilitation, where I was tracked um, by the Army um, until I was medically retired. And then upon the time that I was medically retired, I was automatically tracked by the VA. However, I can see for a lot of guys who aren't wounded, you know, when they return home and they're not being tracked, I can very well see how they can easily fall through the cracks. And, um, you know, a lot of them turn to alcohol and drugs to cope because they don't necessarily have the accessibility to care or just the support system when they return to help them get adjusted to civilian life from being in the military. A lot of the focus is lost on the mental health component. I think we really need to address those individuals who, who are struggling in their transition and, and find out you know, if they're homeless, 
why are they homeless? Upon my transition from the Army in, in the end of 2010, everybody was focused on hiring veterans. You know, everybody wanted to, to give veterans jobs. However, if, if the veteran doesn't have somewhere stable to go after the end of the workday, what's the likelihood that he's gonna be able to return to work tomorrow? You know, we have men and women who have served our country honorably and who are out here on the streets, and none of them wanna be on the streets. Uh, you know, so we have to figure out ways to, to solve this problem. As a community, we have to come together. As businesses, we have to come together and, and create programs and follow through on them and not just throw dollars out there, but ensure that they're implemented and followed through on. We have to have compassion and, and we have to ensure that, uh, you know, that we're doing everything that we that we possibly can to, uh, to take care of these individuals when they come home and as they transition, ensure that they're getting back to work and their kids are healing and that they're able to be productive members of society.